0: All right, two minute warning. Once you guys come grab a seat, we're going to get started in two minutes. You can bring your coffee and donuts with you. You guys matched today. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> All right, should you come grab a seat? I always forget to announce a few things. Uh, One thing I was reminded of uh, to announce is that we are looking for more greeters uh, for Sunday morning. If you're interested in kind of being a part of of the First Impressions team, you like to greet people, uh, you like to smile, uh, maybe you're extroverted or not, um, but we are always in need of more people that can greet on Sunday. And so uh, if you'd like to... Uh, uh, do that. It's an easy way to get uh, involved. Uh, let me know. I'd love to plug you in. Uh, last week, we started a new series called Lamp and Light, and it's based out of Psalm one hundred nineteen, one hundred five, 105, the passage that says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, a light for my path. And so for the month of September, we want to talk about uh, the art of reading Holy Scripture, reading the Bible, uh, reading God's word, and for some people it might be kind of uh, brand new, and uh, for others it might feel like a kind of a, a basics, uh, kind of a review, um, and that's okay. And, and I think that when we are, are talking about scripture, this, this word of God to us, um, it, it's good to kind of uh, be reminded of, uh, of reading it, because it's such an important part of what it means to follow Jesus, is reading scripture, spending time in scripture, and understanding the text. And so last week, we talked about this idea of meditation. And we, we used the analogy of chewing on Scripture. Uh, the haggah in Hebrew is to chew on it, to, uh, to meditate on Scripture, to wrestle with it, to spend time. Uh, and, and, and what we would say is that Scripture is inspired by God, and it's inspired by the Spirit when it was written. Um, and it was anticipated that we would read it and be inspired by God and inspired by the Spirit as we w- would read. And so last week, we talked about this idea of meditating on God's word day and night. Hopefully, um, you are able to, to do that this, this past week. Today, I want to talk about something else uh, when it comes to reading scripture. And I want to start in Matthew chapter 1. And so if you uh, want to open your Bibles or your tablets or however you read, uh, open to Matthew chapter 1 and uh, just bear with me for a little bit here. Verse 1, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. I think I got it for the screen, if you want to follow along. Maybe not. There we go. Up. Is it up? No. Tom, come save me. Anyways, okay, I'll start reading. Uh, A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, what a name, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Are you guys tracking? Reading? No one's bored yet, right? After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad. Abiad, the father of Elakim. Elakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Akim. Akim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Matt then, Matt then the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is the Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations of all, from all of Abraham to David, and 14 from David to the exile in Babylon, 14 to the exile of Christ. How many of you got something out of that passage? How many of you can't believe I actually read the entire passage? <laughs> Here's what happens when we read scripture sometimes. Uh, we read it and we're like, oh, this is, what am I doing reading through this? And, if, and what's interesting is this is the start of the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew, the first account of the story of Jesus. And if you know anything about storytelling or public speaking, you always want to have a really catchy, enticing introduction to grab people's attention, Right? And Matthew starts with this list of names. And so when we're talking about reading the Bible, I'll say, well, if you want to start somewhere, just start in Matthew. But then I'm telling people to start with this list that's the genealogy of Jesus. You read the chapter, and it's like, this is the inspired word of God, but what am I supposed to get out of it? This is how Matthew starts his introduction of the greatest story ever told, a list of names, And so for us, we read it and we're like, I'm just going to blow through this list and get to the good stuff. If you're anything like me, my guess is that that is what you would do. But for Matthew, we want to find out what Matthew is doing here. Uh, You have to remember this. Matthew is uh, writing to a Jewish audience. Now that detail right there, understanding that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience is extremely important because as we list off all of these names, there's some very important characters in this genealogy of Jesus to note. Now, if you're Jewish and you're receiving this story about the life of Jesus, these names in this list would all ring a bell. For us, we read it and we're like, I don't really know what's going on here. But what Matthew is doing is he's listing off these people that are in the lineage the genealogy of Jesus for his audience they would know who these people are because they knew the Old Testament. They would know the characters of the story the same way that we know, maybe, I don't know, the characters of of cartoons that we grew up watching. We know exactly who they are, what their story is, everything about them. The Jewish people knew this list so well. And so when these names are popping up in this genealogy of Jesus, there was this man named Solomon. Most of us probably know who Solomon is. He's one of the most wisest men to ever live On earth. He's also one of the wealthiest kings. He's the son of David. We know that he wrote the book of Proverbs. For the people who were reading this for the first time, they'd be very in tune with, oh, he was also a king. But then they would also know that Solomon made a ton of mistakes. One of his weaknesses was uh, he had a lot of wives, and those wives probably were expensive. That's why he had a lot of money. I don't know, but then he he was really kind of led astray by all of these these women and, and his power and his Uh, wealth kind of corrupts him towards the end of life. He's this great king, and he's in the genealogy of Jesus. There's this man named Uzziah. Uzziah uh, is a king, and his life starts off well as a king, but then he starts making mistakes, and we find out that he is uh, basically given leprosy because of the way he's living, living his life. And so he's in the temple, and the priest ends up touching him, and all of a sudden, leprosy breaks out on his forehead and all the people around him are like, I'm getting out of here and away from this guy. And Uzziah says, indeed, it's not good for me to be here. I'm myself eager to leave. And he gets out of the temple and takes off running. And then you find that he has leprosy in his life. And leprosy is something uh, for the Jewish people that is something that's extremely unclean. If you are a leper, you're like the walking dead. You are an outcast from society. Something You've done something wrong, and now you've been cursed with leprosy. This man Uzziah is in... The genealogy of Jesus. If you're a Jewish uh, and you're, you're reading this story for the first time, you'd be interesting that the story of the king Jesus, this man, is in his genealogy. You have Ahaz, who is crazy. You have Hezekiah, who's this king who's extremely successful. You have Josiah, the story of a king who becomes king at the age of eight. In this lineage of Jesus, you also have Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. If you know this story, Bathsheba, Uh, is this woman that King David ends up having this affair with. And then to cover up the affair, he has Uriah murdered. This in the story, in the lineage and genealogy of Jesus. You have Rahab, who's this prostitute uh, in the Old Testament, but had great faith in God, and God uses her. You have Ruth, who's a Moabite. She's not even part of... of, uh, the, the Jewish uh, ethnicity. She comes from the outside. She's in this story, and she's extremely important. And then you have Tamar, and Tamar is so um, messed up that I can't, as a pastor, even talk about her. Um, Adam Sandstrom is here today. He's a professor at a Christian school. If you want to know who Tamar is, talk to Adam. <laughs> but you have you have these these people in this lineage, and you're reading it, and you're thinking we're talking about. This story of Jesus, who's the Messiah, and he's the king. And as you read this list of people, what you find is that some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them are um, terrible people, and they're all in this genealogy of Jesus. And what we find is that as we go through this list of people, we find that there's this story of really humanity. There's this story of us. We're broken, we're messed up. There's things about us that we would be embarrassed to share. And the author of this story, Matthew, says, I'm not hiding anything when it comes to our history as humans. The genealogy of Jesus, look at some of these people that are part of this story. And so this is actually understanding kind of what's going on in this story, the context of the story. When we read through Matthew chapter 1, it's loaded It's loaded with all sorts of meaning. In the genealogy of Jesus, we would say that what Matthew is doing is the barrier between Jew and Gentile has been broken now because of Jesus. The barriers between male and female are down. The barriers between saint and sinner have been broken down. All of these people in the genealogy of Jesus, this is a a king that's for everyone, saint, sinner. This is a king that's for all people. This would be good News, because if Uriah is in the genealogy of Jesus, and I know, man, his life was so messed up that you know all the things that happened to him. Then maybe my messed up situation, Jesus can handle. There's something extremely powerful going on here. This only comes, though, uh, as as William Barclay would say in his genealogy, Matthew shows us the royalty of kingship gained, the tragedy of freedom lost. The glory of liberty restored, and that, in the mercy of God, is the story of mankind, of each individual person. Here at the very beginning of the gospel, we are given a hint of the all-embracing width of the love of God. God can find his servants amongst those from whom uh, the respectable Orthodox would shudder away in horror. So there is something else going on here in this story. As we read through the genealogy of Jesus... But the way that we understand what Matthew is trying to say, and there's something there for us that has a depth to it, is through this idea of contextualization, understanding the context of the scripture that's written. And I think what happens so much is, like just reading through Matthew, we blow through it, we can't pronounce the words, we don't really know what's going on, and what we find is that Matthew is loading this chapter with meaning. happens all the time when we read scripture. When we come to Scripture, we we read it at face value, um, and we read something that it's hard for us to understand, and without this idea of contextualization, without knowing the context of the audience that it was written to, why it was written, the story behind it, we can lose some of the meaning of what's going on here. And so today, I want to talk about this idea of contextualization as we approach Scripture. When we come to open up a passage understanding the who, the what, the where, the why, the when because I think when we do that, something powerful happens. There's a story in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, uh, there's this uh, Ethiopian eunuch, is what the story is about, and, uh, and there's this guy named Philip who's a follower of Jesus. He's a leader of the church, and he, uh, he stumbles upon this Ethiopian eunuch on this road, and this, this, uh, this Ethiopian is reading the text, and they start having this conversation, and he finds out that he's reading the Old Testament, and Philip comes to him, and he says, you know, what are you reading? And uh, the Ethiopian says, I'm, I'm reading this sacred text, but I don't really know what it, you know, what's going on. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian says, how can I, unless someone explains it to me? And what we find is that they have this conversation about what's going on in the scripture. And the Ethiopian says, yeah, I like that. And the Ethiopian ends up getting baptized, and his life is changed. I think there's something in that story for me uh, that is disarming, to say, I don't have it all figured out when I'm reading scripture. I'm trying to understand it, and I need help to understand it. Um, This is for me as as a pastor, every time I approach any kind of scripture, I have to come to it with this blank uh, page and saying, "I, I have all sorts of preconceived ideas of what this means, but I need help understanding it. So when we meditate on on God's word, like we said last week, we allow God to speak to us. But then as we study it in community, we start to understand, here's what's really going on, and there's something powerful here. So contextualization uh, brings scripture to life. When we understand the context of what's going on, it brings it to life. And when we decide to start digging and studying kind of the story behind what's going on in scripture, all of a sudden it becomes something that's alive for us. So because it comes to life, we're called to be faithful and to trust. We're called to be faithful and to trust. Um, Oops, sorry, wrong slide. My slides are all messed up today. Uh, Contextualization... I'm going to take a pause real quick here. Every time I click on a slide, the wrong slide comes up. Tom, I don't really know what's going on. (laughs) Okay, so contextualization, let's just go back to that point. Contextualization, uh, I've never done this before in a message. I've been completely lost. Draws out the deeper meaning and understanding the truth. Okay, so if if contextualization makes Scripture come to life uh, for us when we dive deep into Scripture... Um, What we find is that the scripture is about real people who have real problems, and they're in relationship with this real God. And for me, uh, as I study scripture and start to contextualize that God comes alive, and I realize that what's happening with the people in this story um, is very similar to what's going on in my life. So for me, when it comes to contextualization of scripture, um, the story uh, that I love in scripture is the story of Peter. Peter is this disciple of Jesus. He's one of his best friends. And the story of Peter um, reminds me of, of myself. I grew up uh, this, uh, this Christian in this house that was kind of uh, sheltered, and I, and I want to have this relationship with God, and, I, and I'm trying to figure out what that relationship looks like. Um, but I make a lot of mistakes. And there's times where I try to get it right and I get it wrong, and it seems like everything that I touch ends up uh, not turning out how I wanted it to. And as I follow the life of Peter, what we find is that he has this shaky relationship with Christ where he messes up, he gets called, all these things. And you kind of follow the story, and then you get to the end of kind of his relationship with Christ, and we find that Peter is actually denying Jesus. And then Jesus comes and he restores him. There's this up and down relationship between Peter and Jesus. And Peter is this disciple who ends up writing a letter called 1 Peter. And in his letter, 1 Peter, uh, he has these words where he says, Praise be to God who has given me uh, new birth, new hope into, out of the great mercy of God because of the resurrection of Jesus. And as you kind of track the whole story of Peter, you start to understand the power of these words in Peter where he's saying that God uh, has been with me my whole life. And as I read that, the scripture comes alive to me because I see that same thing in my life, the ups and downs I have in my relationship with God and how he hangs with me through all of that. Contextualization draws out uh, a deeper understanding and truth. Um, There is uh, this clipping. I am so lost. I'm so sorry. Yes, okay. So I was reading through a TV guide, and uh, there was this uh, description of the Wizard of Oz, and I thought this was interesting. How many here have seen the Wizard of Oz? Yes, Many. Uh, there was this description by this man named Lee Winfrey. He said, transported to a surreal landscape, a young girl kills for the first person she sees and meets, and then teams up with three strangers to kill again. Is that an accurate description of the Wizard of Oz? <laughs> kind of, right? Kind of. That's kind of what happens in the story. But as you enter in the story and you kind of know what's going on in the story, you realize. There's something more going on. She doesn't necessarily kill a person. Her house lands on the evil witch, right? And she meets up with these strangers, and she's trying to free Oz from this other witch. Sometimes when we don't contextualize a story, we come up with a description that might be kind of true, but isn't necessarily accurate. So contextualization leads to a deeper meaning and understanding of scripture. A couple tools that I use that I think are important. Um, Tom, if you go to the app, study tools. For me, Uversion is a great app that you can put on your phone. Um, Uversion is great for studying. Uh, you can you have this app. It's basically, it has the Bible with all of its translations. Um, another great way to study for contextualization is through uh, Strong's Concordance app. So you can put this app on your tablet or on your phone, and it basically gives definitions of words uh, throughout Scripture. The Strong's Concordance app. Um, a couple websites that I go to for a study, BibleGateway.com, probably, I think, the best uh, website out there for, uh, for reading scripture. Um, you can pull up scripture, uh, any translation that you want to, and also adds commentaries of what's going on around the story. Also, BibleHub.com is great. This is uh, ways that you get kind of deeper meaning out of scripture. And then reading commentaries on what the scripture is. So some of my favorite commentaries, William Barclay, N.T. Wright, And then for the Old Testament, Walter Brueggemann. Um, And so as we contextualize scripture, uh, we we get deeper meaning and understanding of what is kind of going on. And then finally, contextualization helps us correctly identify our place in the bigger story. So contextualization helps correctly identify our place in the bigger story. And to be humble about this and to be available, when I think about um, reading scripture... Uh, One of the ways that I approach scripture is this. There's this story of the prodigal son that Jesus tells. And it's the story of the son that has left his father and gone away. But that story is about not just one son, it's also about a second son, a son that actually stays with his father. It's a story of the prodigal son is a story of two sons who have a relationship with their dad. One of them is a rebel and he messes up. The other one isn't a rebel. He does everything that his dad tells him to. And as you kind of track that story, you kind of follow their lives. What happens is the prodigal son comes home. He returns to his dad after his life turns out to be a disaster. And he meets with his dad, and there's this reconciliation. The other son that the story is also about, who's done everything right, becomes very bitter because of what uh, his dad has done out of forgiveness. And so the story isn't just about one son, the story is about two sons, but then we also find that that story is about not just the sons, but it's also about the father. The father has this relationship with the sons and has to learn, or has to decide how he's going to deal with the sons. And so when we contextualize, one of the questions we do is we say, Where, who do I identify with in this story? Maybe it's the prodigal son that's been a rebel and he's ran away, maybe it's the son that's done everything right, and now he's bitter towards his dad. Or maybe in the story, you're like the dad who has two sons, and you have to decide how to offer forgiveness to someone who's wronged you. When we contextualize, we find our place in this bigger story. Another uh, scripture that's uh, a, a book of the Bible that has been very powerful in my life is the book Philemon, or Philemon, however you want to pronounce it. Philemon is the story of a runaway slave And it's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the master of that runaway slave. So there's three people in that story. There's a a runaway slave who's left his master. There's a master who's now found out where that runaway slave is. And then there's Paul who's mediating between the two. And in that story, as Paul's writing to them, he's making this appeal to the master that he would forgive his slave. And he's making this appeal to the slave that he would go back To the master. And remember, this is a different context when there's slavery, uh, but they're talking about this power of forgiveness. And as we read scripture, we ask, who do we identify with in this story? Because all of us uh, have either wronged somebody or been wronged by someone. And all of us have also been around people who've done that, and we're mediating between the two. And so there's times when I have conflict in my own life, or I know I've made a mistake, or someone else has hurt me, well, I'll go to the book of Philemon and read through it and say, this text, this story of this uh, reconciliation that happens can help kind of guide me. And understanding the context of what's going on in Philemon, there's verses about love and forgiveness, and, I, and you have to think if, if these people could do it when they were so painfully hurt by each other, how do we forgive others? Or how do we accept the forgiveness of others? So contextualization contextualization, correct, helps me to correctly identify my place in the bigger story. Um, so contextualization draws out deeper truth it makes the scripture come alive, and it helps us identify our place in this story. Um, so we're called, because of this, to be faithful and trust the text as we spend time in it. And I think as we're we're faithful and we trust the text, it comes alive and it speaks to us. We're called to be teachable and open, to approach Scripture saying, God, what do you want to say to me out of the Scripture? And as I I wrestle with it and as I meditate on it, um, I want to have the spirit of being teachable. And we want to be humble and available as we approach Scripture. As we're humble and available, what we find is that um, that the story there's a, so much a bigger story going on than just what's going on in our own lives. Some people would I've heard say that uh, we read the scripture, but really the scripture reads us, and God speaks to us through that scripture. And it's not necessarily about applying uh, scripture to our own lives, but applying our lives to the truth that comes and is found in scripture. Um, so. Uh, As we continue this month to just read through scripture, this idea of contextualization, diving in and understanding kind of what's going on behind the scenes um, is something that I want to encourage. So we meditate on it day and night, but then we also study scripture, study the context, and allow the context to have deeper meaning and truth for us. Um, Each week we close with communion. And communion is part of this, this story of God's work in the world. Communion represents uh, the body of Christ that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was poured out for us. And as we come to communion, uh, we come with these humble hearts and re- are reminded that the world that we live in is broken and God is putting it back together through his son, Jesus. And all of the scripture that we read points us towards Jesus. And all of the brokenness that we find in scripture, we find Jesus is trying to reconcile and heal So as we go to communion, um, the elements, um, let us be reminded of the story that we're a part of that we find in Scripture. Let us remember what God has done for us. And then as we take the bread that represents the body and we take the cup that represents the blood of Christ, um, uh, let us have this encounter with Jesus and then be reminded that as the collective body of Christ, we are to do the same for the world, to break ourselves open and to pour ourselves out. Uh, So as we close today, uh, Luis is going to sing a song. When you feel ready, move towards communion. Um, Communion is something that we find in God's word. Allow it to be something that's transformative in your life. If you'd like to spend some time just in prayer, uh, some people will be in the back. They'd love to pray with you. Um, But let's spend some time just centering our lives on Christ uh, through communion. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this day. Lord, we thank you for your word. That it's a lamp uh, to our feet and a light for our path. And Lord, when we come to uh, your word, um, let us come knowing that there's something sacred in the text. That it's your love letter to us. That it's revealing uh, who you are and what your plan is for the world. And Lord, and we come sometimes and we... uh, We spend time uh, in your word. Uh, Sometimes we become bored. Sometimes we, we miss what you're trying to say to us. So help us to slow down, Lord, and study your word, to become students of it, to become creatures of the word, that it would guide us in everything that we do. Lord, help us to to trust the truth that's found in Scripture. And as we study and those deeper truths come out, Lord, uh, may we find ourselves in the story. We thank you for your word. Lord, we ask that we don't take it for granted. We love you so much. In your sons name we pray. Amen.